Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin and I'm doing a book review of one of my favourite books and stories. It's called Son of Hamas by Masab Hassan Yusuf. It's a 2010 book published by Tyndale Press and it was a New York Times bestseller. There was also a documentary film made about it in 2014 called The Green Prince, although I have not watched it, but I've read the book. And he was a son of a Hamas leader. His father was Sheikh Hassan Yusuf. And Masab's own brother, Suhaib Yusuf, also defected from Hamas. And you can read about that in the Times of Israel, 4th of July 2019. He was actually the same age as myself. So when he was, when I was 16 year, years old, I was struggling to get through high school and to have the confidence to get a girlfriend. He, on the other hand, at this same age as me, was being stomped on on the back in the back of a Israeli police car before he was taken to a interrogation torture center. He has a very interesting life. So he grew up as a kid in the 1980s uh, there is no one single leader of Hamas. That was interesting. They just had lots of different leaders. It's a bit of a chaotic organisation. And his father was frequently arrested and spirited away by the Shin Bet and Israeli Defence Force. And when his father was away, his mother would get him to bake pastries and sell them. And when relatives and families would see him doing that for a living, they'd tell him off and rebuke him and tell him to go home. But he, he was thinking, well, they're not giving us any money to survive, but it offended their pride that a relative of theirs was needing to sell food to survive. And he talks about how the Intifada uprising began in 1987 after some Palestinians stabbed a Jew to death and then a few days later four Gazans were killed in a traffic accident and then they started spreading misinformation that these Gazans were killed in retaliation for the death of the Jew. And eventually he decided because he lived in such a volatile environment, he and his cousin decided to buy guns. And his cousin rang him up very angrily later and said, these guns don't work. And he, he quickly hung up that the Israelis, being the son of a Hamas leader, were, had his phone tapped. And so he ended up being arrested. They handcuffed him. They sat him down face down in a, a car and he was stomped on the back and brutalised. And they put this filthy hood over his face that had never been washed. It had saliva and sweat and uh, vomit in it and he thought he was going to vomit every time he breathed in it. And they 
handcuffed him to a chair and would leave him there all day playing over and over again First We Take Manhattan by Leonard Cohen. And in the end, I, after a short time in there and being brutalised, he was visited by a Shin Bet officer who was nice to him and said, you know, what, who injured you? What happened to you? That's not allowed. I can get you out of here. And he didn't want to cooperate. And the guy said, I can get you out of here if you cooperate and give me information. And so he finally agreed to help the Shin Bet, but he was secretly planning to kill the Jews but to pretend to take their side. So to get credibility with the rest of Hamas, he had to serve some time in prison. And he served a total of 16 months in prison from the time he was in the interrogation cell till he was taken to court and he was put in this open-air sort of prison where the different factions of the Palestinian rebels were put in these tents and he found they were frequently torturing their own people that they suspected of collaboration, even when they didn't have hard evidence. And some of them were people that were completely innocent. And he found that very, very disillusioning and seeing what was happening. And on pages and two to a hundred and three. He says, soon it got even worse. Instead of one person, three would be under investigation at the same time. One morning at four o'clock, a guy ran through the sector, scrambled up and over the perimeter fence. It was a fenced off area that had guards with machine guns ready to kill them. And in 20 seconds was outside the camp, his clothes and his flesh shredded by the razor wire. An Israeli tower guard swung his machine gun around and took, arm, took aim. Don't shoot, the guy screamed. Don't shoot, I'm not trying to escape. I'm trying to get away from them, meaning his fellow Palestinian prisoners. And he pointed to the panting Marged, that's their leader, who glared out at him through the fence. Soldiers ran out the gate, threw the inmate to the ground, searched him and took him away. Was this Hamas? Was this Islam? And he slowly got more and more disillusioned with the Palestinians. And he saw that they were fighting just for the sake of fighting and when he saw how much they were fighting with each other and they were unwilling to find any compromise with Israel, he became more and more disillusioned. And then eventually he was released in 1997. And for a couple of months he was welcomed by his family and then the Shin Bet, who he'd promised to work with, contacted him. They said, meet at a, at a certain location. And he waited at that location. And then they turned up in a vehicle and said, get in. And he got in. He had to lie down on the floor with a blanket over him. They drove for an hour and then took him to this secret house in 
the West Bank at a Jewish settlement. And he met his former interrogator, uh, Loa, the Shin Bet guy, and Loa gave him a hug and several hundred dollars. And Mossad was expecting him to give him uh, a gun and a list of people to kill or some code book. Instead, he just got that and he said, what do I do with this money? And they said, well, you know, buy yourself some clothes and enjoy life. So I thought, ah, that's interesting. And then sometime later, they contacted him again and then they just spent time talking with him, getting to know him. And then eventually they got him into different assignments. He talks about his time with the Shin Bet. They told him don't have any out of wedlock relationships because you can compromise yourself. And he says how they spoke Arabic well and they understood his family and his culture. And he says the Shin Bet was not trying to break me down, to make me do bad things. They actually seemed to be doing their best to build me up, to make me stronger and wiser. These people were being so kind to me. They clearly cared about me. Why would I want to kill them? I was surprised to realise that I no longer did. And then he writes further. Whenever I met with my shinbet handlers, they told me, if you need anything, just let us know. You can go purify yourself. You can pray. You don't need to be afraid. The food and drink they offered me did not violate Islamic law. My handlers were very careful to avoid doing anything they knew to be offensive to me. They didn't wear shorts. They didn't sit with their legs on the desk and their feet in my face. They were always very respectful. And because of this, I wanted to learn more from them. They didn't behave like military machines. They were human beings and they treated me like a human being. Nearly every time we met, another stone in the foundation of my worldview crumbled. My culture, not my father, had taught me that the IDF and the Israeli people were my enemies. My father didn't see soldiers. He saw individual men doing what they believed to be their duty as soldiers. His problem was not with people, but with the ideas that motivated and drove the people. Loa was more like my father than any Palestinian I had ever met. He did not believe in Allah, but he respected me anyway. So who was my enemy now? And then he complained to them about the torture of that Palestinians were doing of fellow Palestinians in the prison. And Loa said to him, First of all, we cannot change that kind of mentality. It's not our job to teach Hamas to love one another. We cannot come in and say, Hey, don't torture one another, don't kill each other and make everything okay. Second, Hamas destroys itself more from the inside than anything Israel can do to it from the outside. 
The world I knew was relentlessly eroding, revealing another world that I was just beginning to understand. Every time I met with the Shin Bet, I knew something new, something about my life, about others. It wasn't brainwashing me through mind-numbing repetition, starvation and sleep deprivation. What the Israelis were teaching me was more logical and more real than anything I had ever heard from my own people. And then he got enrolled at university and he met some Christians who invited him to a Bible study. And they gave him a New Testament that was in Arabic and English. And he read the Sermon on the Mount and it very, very deeply impressed him about Christianity. And he didn't entirely convert to Christianity at that time. And he didn't entirely reject Islam. His conversion was a very slow, gradual six-year process. And he still had a foot in both camps. But towards the end of the book, on page 227, he talks about how a friend of his invited him to watch a video called by a, a priest called Father Zachariah Botrus. Now, Zachariah Botrus is a world-famous uh, Coptic Orthodox priest. He lives in America at a secret location, and he broadcasts his talks all over the world in Arabic. And he goes over the Quran, and he just destroys it. He shows all of its errors, its spelling mistakes, its contradictions, its inconsistencies. The Al-Qaeda terror network put out a bigger bounty on his head than they did for George W. Bush. I think it was $60 million to kill Zachariah Botrus. But he's still alive. He's still going at it. Now, when Massab heard Zachariah Botrus, at first he was initially angry and didn't want to hear what this guy was saying, but he said that Father Botrus was like a surgeon who cut Islam out of him completely. And he showed that the Quran was cancerous and can't be reformed or changed. And so it was through Zachariah Botrus, because as he said, that man knew the Quran thoroughly, like the back of his hand, and he was a native Arabic speaker. And so he did a great job of destroying his faith in Islam. But I've jumped ahead a bit, but just to get back to when he was working with the Shin Bet. On page 126, he writes, The Camp David Summit between Yasser Arafat, American President Bill Clinton, and Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak ended on the... 25th of July 2000, Barack had offered Arafat about 90% of the West Bank, the entire Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem as the capital of a new Palestinian state. In addition, a new international fund would be established to compensate Palestinians for the property that had been taken from them.
This land of peace offer represented a historic opportunity for the long-suffering Palestinian people, something few Palestinians would have dared imagine possible. But even so, it was not enough for Arafat. Yasser Arafat had grown extraordinarily wealthy as the international symbol of victimhood. He wasn't about to surrender that status and take on the responsibility of actually building a functioning society. So he insisted that all the refugees be permitted to return to the lands they had owned prior to 1967, a condition he was confident Israel would not accept. And needless to say, that peace agreement didn't work. And eventually he was replaced by much greater hardliner Israelis who saw the futility of trying to work with these, with the Palestinians. And when Massab was introduced to Yasser Arafat by his father after this time, Yasser Arafat kissed him on the cheek and Massab wiped the kiss off his cheek. And he saw the look of shock and embarrassment on the faces of his father and Yasser Arafat. And his father never introduced him to him again after that. And eventually, the, he, he also mentions on page 159 how the Palestinian Authority had surveillance equipment that they had bought off the CIA. And they were using that to hunt down and kill any collaborators. And he mentions how Arafat died and was rumoured to have AIDS. Now, here's an interesting little tidbit, not mentioned in this book, but from other sources, is in the 1980s, Yasser Arafat and his bodyguards visited communist Romania, with whom they were allies. And the Romanians, being communists and being totalitarian and paranoid as they are, spied on them, as they did with everyone, friend or foe. And they spied on Arafat and his bodyguards when they stayed in Romania and they found out that Arafat and his guards were homosexuals and they were having orgies in their hotel rooms. And this bit of information could have been used by the Americans and Israelis to blackmail Arafat to cooperate with them, but they never used that. And a conservative anti-homosexual people like the Palestinians, he would have surely lost his credibility with them. But that never happened. And in the years that followed, from 1997 until 2007, Massab gave a good decade of his life to helping stifle many, many terrorist attacks that could have occurred but did not happen. And there was a Shin Bet official who said that there are hundreds and hundreds of people who owe their lives to Massab without even knowing it, without realising it, that they might be dead today if it were not for him foiling 
the and feeding back information to Shin Bet. And finally, he was approved to leave Shin Bet in 2007, and he immigrated to America. And once he got to America, to California, he announced that he had converted to Christianity, and that he had betrayed Hamas, and he published his memoirs. Sadly, his father disowned him. Initially, his father said, no, I won't disown you, you're still my son, but he eventually said, no, I disown you. Uh, but his book became a bestseller, and it's a very insightful book. And he talks about how the, he came to realise that even if, it, if the, all the Jews of Israel just vanished into thin air and there was no one left, it wouldn't solve the problems of the Palestinian people. They would still be fighting and killing each other. And the Islamic religion, if we look at it in places where there are no Jews, or hardly any, such as Iran or Iraq or Syria or Yemen, there is still much mass killing. It's not the occupation by Jews that has hurt the Arabs and made them want to fight each other. It's Islam that's done that. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is the answer. And it is only through Christ that there can be true unity and peace between the Jews and the Arabs. Uh, the militant religion like Islam is busy killing off and persecuting Yazidis and Christians and Jews and any minority, and not only killing non-Muslims, but killing each other as well. And what particularly impressed Masap about Christianity was reading the Sermon on the Mount and the love that Jesus showed. And everything about it made sense. So I would encourage you to get a hold of a copy of this book and have a read of it, Son of Hamas by Masab Hassan Yusuf. Thank you for listening.